Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as Vancouver Council moves to abolish the elected park board, former civic leaders mount a campaign to save the institution. And the province says their housing legislation will lead to 250,000 new homes to be built in B.C. in a decade. The construction industry says not a chance. We find out why. Plus, God, are you there? Why are British Columbians increasingly saying religion is not an important part of their life? Plus, from the provincial opposition's implosion to park board drama... Keith Baldry joins us as we discuss the week that was in BC politics. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's get to our top story. We learned this week Mayor Ken Sim wants to abolish the seven-member elected Vancouver Park Board, which includes six commissioners who belong to his own ABC Vancouver party. Now, the mayor said he would introduce a motion on uh, December 13th at the council meeting to request that uh, the BC government make necessary changes to the Vancouver Charter, which is a provincial statute, to begin the process to dissolve the board and transfer legal powers to city council. Now, what is Ken Sim's reasoning? Take a listen. You look at the aquatic center, the side of a building fell off. Uh, you look at the Stanley Park train, that thing was going to go to the uh, scrap heap and we actually had to work around that and go to private donors and uh, look for outside help to help us. When you speak to Trout Lake, you literally have families and kids that actually want to improve their diamond, um, their field, and they've even raised money, but they're being stymied by, uh, uh, you know, the park board. You know, uh, filming companies or uh, the movie industry, they want to pull permits. They actually have to go to two different groups if they want to, let's say, film and do Chilling Park. They need to get a, a permit for the park and another one uh, to park their cars from the city of Vancouver and it just adds its craziness. You look at Malkin Bowl, uh, that asset is a gem. It's been severely neglected. We even have people that will privately donate to fund it and um, they're not a, it, the park, it, they're being rejected. The Honda Celebration of Lights, Moby Bikes, it took five years to get a docking station put at Kitts Community Centre because once again two different jurisdictions, two sets of permits, two sets of paperwork, legal agreements, uh, Spanish Bank washrooms, we have a broken water pipe and because of the cross-jurisdictional issues we actually don't have war- working bathrooms um, in parts of Stanley, uh, Spanish Bank for over a year now. That was uh, Ken Sim speaking to Jill Bennett uh, on Mornings with Simi the other day. Talk about throwing everything up against the wall. Wow. Now, the board was first established in 1888 to help oversee Stanley Park. Uh, the park board itself, um, uh, you know, deals with assets including 250 public parks and beaches, including Stanley Park, as I said, Van Dusen Botanical Garden, Bloedel Conservatory, 24 community centres, swimming pools, rinks and arenas, sporting fields, playgrounds, a lot there. Well, now a move is afoot to save the park board. The move to save the board is being led by former park board commissioners and other civic leaders from different political backgrounds. Their mission, as I said, is to save the park board. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Melissa DiGenova, is a former NPA City Council and Park Board Commissioner, and Sarah Bly, the former Vision Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Melissa, Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, well, Tom. Let's, let's start uh, right off the top in regards to some of the comments that uh, Ken Sim made. Uh, literally, he was throwing everything up against the cupboard there. Uh, Melissa, let me start with you. Uh, what do you say to the broad assertion that, look, um, everything you try to do at um, at uh, the park board, you got to do it twice, first with the park board, then with the city. There's duplication of service. There's bureaucracy. It's not efficient. What do you say to that argument the mayor's making? Well, what I say to that, Jazz, is uh, first of all, um, the real estate and facility management at the city has taken over a lot of that maintenance. So a lot of what Ken Sim's talking about is actually a city responsibility. So I mean, people came to me when I was a city councillor, after I was a park board commissioner, and gave me examples of how the city's doing a bad job. I don't see city council trying to abolish themselves. So we can talk about bad examples across the board, but I think that there are a lot of reasons also to save the park board and preserve the independent elected park board that Vancouver's known for. Uh, Sarah, to you, uh, you are a former park board commissioner. Um, no other city has an elected park board. Yeah. Surrey is a city of parks. It's almost yeah. the size of Vancouver. Major cities around North America have beautiful parks, great parks, and they don't need an electric park board. Yeah. Why does Vancouver need one? Well, uh, for the uniqueness of, of our parks, um, they're award-winning parks. Um, we have... He mentioned Dude Chilling Park. That was a park board initiative. We've got, um, like, our parks are so uh, unique and beautiful. And um, I guess uh, maybe Melissa can add to that. 
Well, just to add to that a little bit, I think that what's so unique about our our park mm-hmm. board and the way that we're run at, instead of other municipalities is you look at our community center association. So each and every single community center has its own association. And these are volunteers who raise money that don't come out of your city tax budget. Um, So I'm actually concerned that the budget's going to increase if the park board's eliminated because I've heard from a number of these volunteers who haven't even been consulted. They're in absolute shock. They heard about this uh, from the media. They haven't been asked their opinions about this, and they're relied on for millions and millions of dollars every year. But these are the people, Jazz, who um, you know lead the backpack programs and fill up kids' backpacks in Strathcona for the weekend so that they have food on on their table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they deal with the most vulnerable and marginalized people. So well, I'm when, when I was yeah. when I was elected and yeah. when I ran, I ran um, on and I was elected. I I I I was um, like. Galvanized, galvanized youth, and I, I wanted to make sure that um, we would bring youth to the to the table in parks like skateboard parks. I think we developed eight new skateboard parks, BMX parks. We work with council. One of the things that was missing is that when we work with um, city council, um, they help us determine the budget, so they could help determine park board budget with park board and a lot of times they starve the park board of a proper budget Mm -hmm. Um, and it is hard so Ken could instead of getting rid of the elected park board you could extend help to that park board and give them a chance Mm -hmm. Um, they they were elected they were elected by the people came out and voted for them Um, they could have run on that Um, they didn't run on that they could run on that in the next election they could say, we want a council, we don't want a park board. And do, do you think this was a bait and switch, that this is always Ken Sim and a core group of organizers' idea that I think so. Elected? I think they would have had a really hard time getting elected. I think having a couple extra um, commissioners on there on the ballot, they can fundraise more money. Each commissioner comes with a community. Um, uh, Brandon, he's, a, he's from the sports community, so he's galvanizing all of those people who come out and vote for him. When I was on park board, I got as many... Uh, votes as most city councillors did. Um, and I know that people came out and voted for me. When I'm in the downtown east side, people would say, I voted for you. Um, people actually come out and vote. They, they, this is a, a process, and it's a, a legal binding process. Mm-hmm. That uh, Now, Brennan uh, uh, Bastiavansky was on the show the other day. He mentioned in that interview that uh, he believes the park board is underfunded by about $20 million per year, roughly. Uh, Melissa, to you, um, now this organization, this movement that you all have started, this is nonpartisan, and what's going to be happening in the next week then? Well, it really just started like hours after this announcement was made and commissioners were reaching out to each other. Some of them I haven't talked to. I mean, uh, I've been ignorantly blissful, uh, or I've, I've, I have to say it's been a little bit blissful to be uh, ignorant about some of the politics since, I, since I've left uh, about a year ago, but uh, I started to get calls from other past commissioners. I know Sarah did, and uh, we and connected. community members. And, Lots of different yeah. community groups were like, what yeah. the hell going on even the uh, downtown east side today people know all know yeah. about it and they're like so, so so i started this whatsapp chat group yeah. just to get everyone together because i didn't have everyone's numbers and everyone wanted a way to connect and it's really amazing we have former uh cope commissioners in there npa green vision vancouver independent going all the way back to 1970 and it's just growing this group and, so what you will yeah. you be doing next week then well, um, we intend on showing some support at the park board meeting, mm-hmm. which will be on Monday night. And I know that there's nothing on the agenda right now, but I think that it's really important to show our support for those park board commissioners who have stepped up. And I think that, you know, Commissioner Jensen made a statement saying that he will step up and he will serve his community. And my hope, Jazz, is that, you know, this council can see. And I know that Ken Sims saw once, uh, and and he actually said, I'm not going to abolish the park board. I'm going to walk that back. So I really hope that Mayor Sim will consider doing that again, Mm -hmm. especially when he sees the community support there is for this initiative. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Melissa DeGenova, former NPA City Council and Park Board Commissioner, and Sarah Blythe, former Vision Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Uh, they're part of a group of people, former civic leaders, former Park Board Commissioners as well, who said they want to save the Park Board. It's important that they save the Park Board because it is a very unique institution here in Vancouver, although most uh, communities across this country do not have uh, an elected 
uh, elected park board. So give us a call on the open line. I do want to hear from you on this issue, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to Ryan in Richmond. Hi, Ryan. Oh, looks like we lost Ryan. We got Ryan there? No, looks like we lost him. Oh, no. Have we got Ryan? No, we don't. Ryan is lost. Okay. Uh, let me just play a clip for right now from Brennan uh, Bastiavansky, uh, which uh, occurred the other day. He's the independent chair of the park board. And I asked him about whether he had faith in Ken Sim, the mayor, and his leadership. Take a listen. Do you have faith in Ken Sim as a leader for the city? Uh, uh, maybe ask me a different question. Uh, look, when I met Ken, uh, I was impressed, right? He's a business guy. I'm a business guy. You know, I, I had faith in him and he looked me in the eye and, and, and he, he made a promise that I'd be able to finish my term as a commissioner, that he had, he had, uh, walked back that whole thing about, uh, abolishing the park board. And I, you know what? I believed him and I, I feel like an idiot for, for believing him. And I'm heartbroken that not only did Ken uh, do a backflip uh, on that, uh, but he's forcing the, the ABC councillors to do it too. And, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm, I am like, it's just unconscionable that, the, uh, that they would do that. And so I feel really betrayed. And I know a lot of people in the city feel that way as well. Uh, that is Brennan Bastiavansky uh, asked about uh, whether he had faith in Ken Sim. Clearly, by his response, he does not. Let's try. Uh, let's go to the open line again. Let's try Ryan in Richmond. Hi, Ryan. Hey. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What's on your mind? Well, I'm a Vancouver native. I was born here. Oh, if I, if I tell you, it was during World War II. <laughs> That's the truth. I have seen what the Parks Board has done to the parks of this city. Uh, they are the most useless group of elected people ever put on, on uh, any board anywhere. What they have done to the parks in, in Vancouver is just criminal. What, what specifically? Have, well, you forget what the original purpose of Stanley Park was. It was a park for the people where you could go and enjoy the park now they're talking about uh fees to drive into the park the parking fees are ridiculous everything you do in the park now costs way more money than they ever anybody ever thought of stanley park has been turned into the pne for god's sake so in your opinion it's the parking costs that they should be reduced significantly or at the very least uh you shouldn't have parking for that you shouldn't, you shouldn't have, to have be, parking fees for local it's folks uh, Melissa, do you want to answer that? Well, I'll just say that um, the last time I checked, uh, you could drive through Stanley Park freely, and I understand that there are parking charges, and there's charges for, I think, um, the miniature train and, you know, to go to the aquarium. But other than that, you can enjoy the park freely. Um, I, I do empathize with the caller, though, because I, I know that the park board, as Sarah said, has been underfunded for years and years, and I don't think that that's the fault of the park board. The park board has, even when it's it's been the same political alignment, mm-hmm. uh, gone to city council and fought for more funding. So I think when we talk about funding and maintenance, uh, you you can only do so much uh, depending on the amount of money you have in your budget. But I also think that we have to consider about the volunteers that Park Board brings on, like the community center associations. I'd love to know how much money in the last uh, year they raised and if they've been consulted fully about this transition. But I understand what the caller is saying. Let's go to Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Yes. Hey, you know what, uh, whether the park board, to be honest with you, is relevant in today's society, whether you need that, it, it, you know, it really doesn't matter. But, but my point is here, Jazz, is they are elected. Now, I hear Ken Sim is going to run to David Eby and he's going to get the NDP and Eby to overturn this. And you know what? It'll happen. And in my opinion, Jazz, the reason it's going to happen is the NDP now have a pattern. They like to over, over, you know, overturn uh, elections. These people at the park board are elected. So whether it be the Surrey would, Police would, and overturning that or overturning running their rough shot over municipalities now. Rob, thanks and, for your call. Thanks for your call. We've run out of time, but I'm sorry, I want you to uh, give us your response. Yeah, I, I like there is a legal aspect to this where um, I think it can be challenged. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we're going to work on finding a way to challenge this in a, in a legal way. Sarah, uh, Melissa, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jess. 
Welcome to The Week That Was, your definitive source for political news, where we delve into the headlines, dissect the debates, and analyze events that shaped the past seven days. Joining me now is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry. Hello, Keith. Happy Friday, Jazz. Happy Friday. Well, BC Conservative Leader John Rustad this week says that Premier David Eby and opposition BC United Leader Kevin Falcon are both looking over their shoulders at the uh, political gains being made by the new kid on the block. Uh, lots to talk about here. Uh, Premier David Eby was on the show earlier this week, and I did ask him who did he view as his opposition. Take a listen. The anxiety I have is in the growth of the Conservative Party. Here you have a party that's anti-science, anti-vaccine. The biggest threat they see uh, to kids is teachers and school librarians. Uh, They deny that uh, human-caused climate change is real or that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. And they bring the worst of the American culture wars uh, to British Columbia. It is alarming to me that that they are seeing the kind of poll results they are. And so I feel very anxious about that. Uh, So based based on the Premier's response, he best definitely believes he's concerned about the B.C. Conservatives. The party does appear to be gaining momentum with voters as British Columbia uh, is scheduled for a fall election in October of uh, 2024. Uh, The Conservatives received less than 2% of the vote in the 2020 election and did not win a seat, but they could finish in second place if an election were held today based on a recent public opinion uh, poll. So, Keith, let me start with you. Um, How much of a threat are the B.C. Conservatives to B.C. United, the official opposition? Well, on paper, they are a big threat. Um, But, again, in terms of infrastructure of a party, they're really nothing um, that compares with even BC United right now. But, you know, at the end of the day, and I've talked about this before, in 1991, uh, we saw this phenomenon where the electorate moved en masse to a party that had no infrastructure itself, no no real executive or staff and such. And that was going from the Social Credit Party to the BC Liberal Party. And that's how the BC Liberal Party was born. Uh, it didn't form government in 91. It almost formed government in 96. It took 10 years to actually move into government to rebuild that coalition. And we may be witnessing that uh, now, with the what apparently the sinking of BC United, unless they get their act together, and the transfer of people who used to vote for the BC Liberals now voting for the BC Conservatives. You know, what to keep in mind, the BC Liberal Party was not the Liberal Party, like the Liberal Party of Canada. It, it was it consisted of a coalition of both liberal and conservative interests. So, uh, true conservatives had to be told and convinced by liberals to come on over to the liberals to be the free enterprise coalition to take on the NDP. Well, now what we may be seeing is the B.C. conservatives telling liberals uh, to come on over to the B.C. conservatives to form the the coalition to to defeat the NDP. A lot easier said than done. It takes a long time if you can pull it off. And the other thing is that... um, the BC Liberal Coalition was headed up by Gordon Campbell after he replaced Gordon Wilson, who was kind of a centrist right person, whereas right now the Conservatives are really a two-person caucus, and they're espousing fairly right-wing positions, as David Eby just outlined. Those are not the positions of a free enterprise coalition party that has to combine both liberals and conservatives. But this phenomena that happened in 91 may be replaying itself right now because BC United has the most MLAs, but its brand recognition is far uh, less than the BC Conservative brand. And this will inevitably raise some questions about leadership, about who would lead a free enterprise coalition and about Kevin Falcon, the job he's doing leading United right now, what appears to be over a cliff more than anything else. So how much of this free fall should be blamed on, on Falcon? Some have said, look, the BC Conservatives are doing well because of an identity issue. People think they're connected to the federal Conservatives, which they're not. Um, and, uh, the, you know, it's an issue of name recognition for BC United. But how much of this free fall should be blamed on Kevin Falcon? Well, I think the, the biggest mistake that has been made was changing the name. So taking a name that had been electoral powerhouse for years, you know, winning a number of elections and almost winning the 2017 election, even won the most seats, and it did win the popular vote, just didn't win enough seats. Uh, to change that uh, to something that no one's ever heard of or has no history in B.C. was a real puzzling roll of the dice that right now has proven to be an absolute disaster. And given that was Falcon's push, that was his move, that blame, I think, has to be put at his feet. I think that's the number one mistake. The number two mistake was kicking John Rustad out of the caucus for um, ostensibly retweeting a tweet that questioned uh, the science fan climate change. 
Um, that's come back to bite Mr. Falcon and the former caucus big time. So you put those two mistakes together. Um, they're considerable. So it's going to be interesting in the weeks ahead. If I'm, I was talking to my, our colleague Richard Usman today, all the year-end interviews Mr. Falcon's going to have in the media, how many times is he going to be asked about his leadership? I suspect it's going to come up in every interview. Uh- uh, how do you ask this delicately? I guess you don't. Should we be? Should there be a Kevin Falcon death watch? I think it's still a little. We're not quite there yet. But I'll tell you, seventeen percent. If you're leading a party at seventeen percent in the polls, that's basically a little better than fringe party status. And I don't think that side of the, the, the interest of that party are going to stand for that. And unless the makes a real effort at picking up the pace here and improving their their standing. Uh, in public opinion, then I do think there's a, there's going to be some serious questions about leadership. Uh, there's been talk of a merger, both Rustad and now Falcon. Is how we want to sit down and talk about about stuff. But who's going to lead the party? Is it going to be if there is if they can pull off a merger, which I don't think is that possible, at least not before the next election. Who would be the leader? Would it be Kevin Falcon or John Rustad? Would, would Rustad really agree to something that would put the guy who kicked him out of caucus as his leader again? That seems far-fetched. And would Kevin Falcon actually step down to let someone he kicked out of caucus be the leader? That seems far-fetched as well. So maybe there's a third name out there. Maybe there's someone who's brand new uh, who can head up a party that uh, right now uh, shows no signs of actually forming. Um, the other thing that we don't see, uh, and the folks that could have a tremendous impact on this, is the BC United Caucus. They could decide they don't like Mr. Falcon or they're not going anywhere. And I mean, imagine if we got two or three polls reiterating what we've already seen with the latest poll uh, from Abacus Status, sitting at 17% for BC United. You get a couple more of these polls in January or February. I, you have to admit that the caucus is going to look at this, the BC United Caucus, and go, well, what's my chance of winning in my riding uh, unless we A, merge them, or maybe I join the Conservatives? I don't know, but Mr. Falcon has to be a tad nervous of his own caucus oh. who probably want to survive themselves. Having seen this movie several times, I'd say, yes, you should be nervous. Um, but I think right now they're not there yet. It's interesting. The, the United just put out some news releases just moments ago uh, saying that Mr. Falcon's going to be at two events on Sunday and Monday announcing new candidates in uh, Abbotsford and Richmond. So he's still out there doing what he's supposed to be doing, uh, which is you know recruiting candidates and, and trying to make a bit of a splash. But I wouldn't be surprised if he's asked about his leadership at these events by, by the reporters. So, yeah, if another poll comes out in January from Abacus or Angus Reid or Leger or a, a good pollster with a good track record that has them down at less than 20 percent and the Conservatives are approaching 30, I wouldn't be surprised to see some caucus members jump, jump ship because uh, that poll you got in Abbotsford West, uh, where they're you know, far behind the Conservatives there, uh, has got to make some, a number of MLAs who represent areas of a conservative nature federally mm-hmm. very nervous because that federal vote will go, could go provincial, could go conservative on a provincial basis because it used to go BC Liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking about huge chunks of the interior Fraser Valley in the north, where right now the conservatives have a big lead, or the conservatives do have a big lead over United, and the NDP is far more competitive there than BC United is. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Uh, we're talking about the week that was in BC politics, which uh, we will be running every Friday at 4 o'clock. Uh, let's go to the open line, packed board. Everybody's interested in this uh, opposition uh, politics going on and, and what else is going on in BC politics as well. Lots with the NDP. Uh, let's go to Carrie and Siri. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say I think this is a phase for both um, the B.C. conservative and federal conservatives. I think once people start uh, seeing how extreme both of these parties are, they're going to start pulling away to the center. For example, I've read the policy documents for both the federal and the B.C. conservatives, and both of them have bans on gender-affirming care, which not only um, prevents suicide prevention for youth, but now you're interfering with medical decisions or having a government interfere with medical decisions with um, government, with doctors and their patients. But So I don't think this is going to last. But I have a question for both of you. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a chance that BC United could change their names back to BC Liberals? Uh, Keith, I'll let you answer that one. You know what, uh, caller? You're not the first person to ask that question or suggest that. They still retain the ownership of that name, 
Um, but uh, the guy who would be really opposed to that would be Kevin Falcon. But maybe that is the solution. I mean, that, this is not idle chat. There have been discussions out there. I've talked to some senior people, of, not associated with the current caucus, but the previous caucus, who said, yeah, maybe the time has come to jettison this idea that's not working. The VC Liberal brand is still known. It was the government here for 16 years, after all. But uh, I don't know. I would, I would have to be a big come down by, by Mr. Falcon. You and I have talked about this privately, but technically, even on the ballot, you, even if you had BC United, you could put beneath it formerly BC Liberals on the ballot. Could you not next time? I haven't got a definitive answer from Elections BC on that. Okay. Elections BC does uh, produce the ballots, but I have heard that suggested. And maybe, again, with the Leger poll that had the uh, BC United basically tied with BC Conservatives around 20%, did point that out to the respondents when they gave them a choice. They said BC United, formerly known as the BC Liberals, and they still polled it around 20%, 22%. Wow. Wow. Uh, let's go to uh, Peter in North Vancouver. Hi, Peter. Hi guys, uh, thanks. Uh, just to respond to what you said, I what you said earlier that firing John Rustad from the party over a tweet that he retweeted, I, I agree with that. I, you know, uh, let's first acknowledge that a precious we look up what the tweet actually was and what he said. I remember doing that, and I I'm in my car, so I can't quote it for you word for word, but. It struck me as something that wasn't that far away from what mainstream thought is of people on the street. Uh, I don't think it was that shocking. And, um, you know, on the branding issue, I've got to think that once people see an election campaign going on and they see their incumbent NLA advertising under a new banner, that that probably will clear itself up a bit. But I'm a person who has been a card-carrying member of both the BC Liberal Party and the BC Conservative Party, and and uh, I was what they called a blue liberal. Um, you know, never uncomfortable, never comfortable with the name liberal. And you know, I had friends that were red liberals, and they would phone me up and say, you know, what are your people thinking about this issue or that issue? Uh, you know, we united under Gordon Campbell, uh, under Christy Clark. The par- the party took a big turn left, mm-hmm. and a number of us left, and we were uncomfortable with that. And, and uh, you know, the last thing I want to point out is everybody's talking about the conservatives, quote, bringing U.S. style politics. I would I would say that the person, the people talking about Al Gore's climate change policies and and uh, all of these crazy ideas about, you know, quote, gender affirming care Mm -hmm. for surgeries for 12 year olds who can't even get a tattoo yet. I would say those are the people bringing U.S. style politics. All right, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I mean, Peter does raise an issue. I mean, at any time, it's difficult to keep a coalition together. And I guess within with the polarized politics of today, this was probably inevitable. The only thing I would say with Mr. Russ said, if it wasn't that tweet, it could have been something else. And I've seen this with Laurie Thornis in that caucus as well. If it wasn't one thing, it could have been something well, else Falcon, later on. Falcon said this is just an example of him not being a team player. So it was, yeah. it was giving the impression it was more than just one tweet. The caller, Peter made an interesting point, though. Does the brand problem uh, not disappear but become less of a problem once the campaign starts? Once it becomes apparent who everybody is, given that people don't pay real close attention to politics between campaigns, yeah, maybe, and I'm sure this is an argument Falcon's going to make. That wait till the campaign starts. That's when we're going to get known. Well, I hope so. But the challenge is, if the BC Conservatives are polling at 25, 26, 27 percent, they can do serious damage. If the BC Conservatives are polling at a solid 10 percent, they can do a lot of damage to BC United. So it's not a question of whether or not BC United loses. BC Conservatives have to fall down significantly in regards to support uh, because it doesn't take a lot to damage. Particularly on a riding by riding basis. Exactly. We got about a minute, but Deb. I know you, but Debbie, you've been very patient. I want to make sure I get you on. Go ahead. Hi, Jazz. Oh, this is awesome. I just want to say, okay, so I'm in my mid-60s. I, I completely support the Conservative Party. They speak for my values, principles, mm-hmm. and morals. And I think you're going to see a lot of people feel that way, too. I mean, this NDP government is like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, free drugs, 
like all this kind of stuff. And I just want you to know, I think there's a lot of people out there like me. I, Deb, thank anyway. you for your call. Really yeah, appreciate it. Well, this is also going to reflect the growing rural-urban divide in B.C. The rural areas are very strong, conservative-oriented, that went B.C. liberal before because it was a coalition, but go federally conservative and look for the Conservative Party of B.C. to be strongest in those areas. Yeah. Well, Keith, I hope we can keep this uh, regular yep. Friday 4 o'clock uh, segment because I think it's important. There's lots always going and on. We'll be in next week. Now, one of the other things we always talk about on this show is housing, affordable housing, housing crisis. There's lots to talk about. Uh, now, recently, the NDP introduced housing legislation during this fall uh, legislative period. There was Bill 35, uh, which restricted short-term rentals. Uh, there was Bill 44 that requires municipalities to expand their housing stock, and Bill 47, which creates more than 100 zones which are focused on transit-oriented housing development. The plan um, is radical um, when you look at housing legislation. Uh, and when David Eby was on this show uh, just on Monday, uh, we had asked him about um, uh, uh, what do you hope to do when it comes to legislation? He talked about big swings. Well, David Eby was speaking to the BC Chamber of Commerce this week as well, uh, and he talked a little bit about how many new homes will be built under the new legislation over the next 10 years. Take a listen. We have retained some esteemed economists uh, to do some modeling for us on the, uh, on the uh, legislation that went forward. Uh, and they advise us uh, that, and obviously it's economic modeling, there's a lot of different factors to take into account, but on their projections, net new additional, uh, 250,000 new units in the next decade, thanks to the legislative reforms that we put in place over the last legislative session. So that sounds great, 250,000 homes over the next 10 years, but somebody has to build them. Joining me now is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Chris, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Shaz. Great to be on the show today. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, the modeling, uh, the Premier said on average 250,000 homes. Uh, I think the low part of that modeling said 216, 216, and the high part said 293. So averaging about 250,000. Uh, your members build homes. They built uh, uh, all types of infrastructures, infrastructure across this province. Do you believe that it is possible, possible to build 250,000 new homes under the present system. Yes, I do. But but here's the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you look at the report, page 21 sets it out very clearly. It says the cause of housing shortages is regulatory. And what do they mean by that? They mean the rules, the regulation, the taxes, all the barriers that we put in place that, that take it too long to build homes and that it costs to those homes. And so that really is the challenge. So CMHC came out with a report earlier this year and said, we need to build in Canada 800,000 new homes every single year between now and 2030 to meet current demand. How much are we building now? Well, last year we built 220,000 new homes. Nationally. Nationally. And in 1972, we actually built more homes. We built 230,000 new homes. So for the last 50 years, we have not really been able to move the needle on supply. So that is the challenge, and the report set that out really clearly. So we've got to address the rules and the regulations that prevent builders from doing what they do best, which is build homes. Um, what needs to change then? If you're saying we need to allow builders to build homes uh, beyond the regulatory side, speak to me a little bit about the labor situation at the moment. Well, you know, we have um, what we don't do a good job of in Canada is identifying the skills gap in our economy and then attracting people to the country to address those gaps in in our economy. So for example, this year we will take in about 460,000 new immigrants to Canada. Only 2% of those individuals are gonna go into the trades. So we've got an acute labor shortage of skilled tradespeople in this country, but our immigration system isn't doing the work it needs to do to address that skill shortage. That's a big problem. Mm -hmm. The other challenge here is that as we start to build more homes, if you look at what's happening to Canada's, we, we're in a, in a situation where our population is expanding at a rate that we haven't seen since the 1950s, just after World War II. So StatsCan came out in, in the summer and said in, in July that our population had increased in this country by 1.2 million people. That's a historically high rate. So those people need to live somewhere, they need to rent housing. So as we start to build more housing, the challenge is on the demand side, we're also, we've attracted uh, a whole bunch of new folks to the country that need to live somewhere. So the challenge is, is, is actually 
more cha- more difficult than I think our elected officials are are telling us. Yeah, I, I do find it interesting that a country like the United States with 300 million plus people, I think they, 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 they're allowing about 1.5 million people to come in. We are a country of 40 million with 1.2 million. The math just doesn't add up. And I, and I don't see any other G7 nation that remotely uh, is doing what we are doing in regards to people coming into this country. Now, if you want to make the argument, okay, we need the immigration, so be it. Uh, but there isn't the housing that is there. Um, is this a question, of, to be very blunt, that we need to actually reduce the amount of immigration we have in this country uh, if we're going to actually be able to balance people and housing to a certain degree? Because well, you can't, certainly the industry can't build at that much. Well, we're not going to build four times the amount of homes that we're building right now next yeah. year, the year after, the year after that. It's just not going to happen because of the rules, the regulations. In terms of immigration and, and whether that – and immigration also, it's not just the permanent immigrants who are coming here. It's also international students. We have nearly a million international students studying in Canada. And so if you look at and, – and so we've got 2.2 million non-permanent residents now living in this country. That is historically – it's another record for Canada. So so it's about balance. What, is, what should that number be? Nobody is saying we should be closing our doors. The question is, what is the number that we can digest in our education system, our healthcare system, and for rental housing and, and, and permanent housing? And we haven't really had that discussion. So if you look at what we're doing on the international student side, UBC, Sauter School of Business, first year tuition for a Canadian student is $5,800. For an international student, it's $58,000, 10 times as much. So we're basically incentivizing our post secondary institutions mm-hmm. to go out and recruit international students. So what's that doing? It's creating an imbalance. And it's also denying Canadian students opportunities to study because international students are paying $58,000 versus 5800 it, It's upside down. It, it, it's, so we've got to have that discussion. We've got to have the discussion on the rules, regulations, and red tape. Listen, if, if Canada's, if all, every time a government says, whether it's Ottawa, Victoria, or City Hall, we've got a new program. We're going to raise taxes. We're going to we're going to you know we're going to put in more rules and regulations to get to affordable housing. If affordable housing in Canada was based on rules, regulations, red tape, and taxes, we'd have the cheapest housing on the planet. Yeah. It's not working, and the report says it very clearly. The challenge with the housing shortage is a regulatory one. We are talking about housing, specifically the fact that uh, the BC government says that uh, a panel of noted economists uh, have modeled the uh, BC housing plan and said BC could have up to 250,000 new housing units by 2034, so over the next 10 years or so. Uh, But there's lots of challenges there. As Chris Gardner, our guest, uh, has articulated, he's president uh, and CEO of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Would love to hear from you in regards to how we kickstart more housing to be built and where you think some of the bottlenecks are, uh, because it's at City Hall, as Chris said, there's also challenges. And just in regards to labor as well, 604-280-9898. Let's go to Vince in White Rock. Hi, Vince. Hey, Jazz. How you doing? I'm doing well. What's on your mind? Well, you know, in the 50s and 60s, when the Europeans came over, my dad was one of them in the 60s. The trades that came over were impeccable. They're, they're, they're awesome. They knew how to build uh, Polish with floors. I mean... 250,000 homes, I mean, that, that's a promise that ain't going to be delivered. We're losing all our trades to, to Alberta. We're losing our trades because we're heavily taxed here. It, this, this province is just, I mean, it, especially Vancouver, born and raised in East Vancouver. Mm-hmm. was It was awesome. Those, day, those days are gone. In the 80s was fun, and we're going through a recession in 1980, and it was still fun. Yeah, it's so, a, it's a, I'm curious, are you of Italian heritage? I have to ask. <laughs> I'm Italian heritage. My dad was a road builder. Uh-huh. Then I became, I, I, I then started, I, I left school in, in grade 10, and I fell, followed in his footsteps. I've been running an excavator now for 25 years. You know, so um, our trades were, were huge back then. Everything now that's getting built has been over budget in the last seven, eight years. Why? Because it's just we don't have the, the, the skill on the ground, the boots on the ground. Yeah. You know? Vince, days are gone. Yeah, Vince, thank you for your call. Really appreciate it. I had to ask his Italian heritage. He said East fan, and I kind of thought trades folks. And you're right. I mean, he, he raises a very good point. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of immigrants came to this country, especially the Italian community at that in that time. And uh, they've made such a contribution to this province and the city. 
And now, never mind just having enough tradespeople, can tradespeople actually afford to live in this, this city as well? That's part of the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, listen, uh, Vince makes a great point. We, we live in a time where we diminish the, the value of, of the work that people who work with their hands do. Yeah. It's vitally important to our economy. Uh, if you are in the skilled trades, if you're an electrician, a plumber, a drywaller, it's hard not to think when you wake up every day to go do your job that the deck is stacked against you. That you know the, that every level of government is looking to, uh, as you try and build your your subcontracting business, to tax you, make to impose regulations, make your job more difficult, not helping you, vilifying you um, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as someone who's working with their hands in the trades. And we've got to change that narrative mm-hmm. uh, because if you're going to attract people to the trades, what people need to understand is when kids are in high school and they say, "Hey, I." I, I'm, I want, I'm interested in starting my own business. I guarantee you that, that 99 times out of 100, that counselor is going to say, go to UBC, go to SU, study accounting, studying business. What they should be saying is go to a technical school, learn a trade, get some experience, and become a contractor. Because every single time you drive by a construction job site and you look at all those signs, those signs are family names, individual names, partners, mm-hmm. people who are taking risks, they're entrepreneurs, they're building a business. We should be supporting them and helping them do what we need them to do, which is build more homes. Yeah. Uh, let's go to George in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Hi, guys. I mean, this issue dovetails really nicely with your whole series on the next million. Mm-hmm. As long as we're having 20 people coming for every house we're building, we're never going to solve this problem. Your series has scared me more than anything I've ever listened to in my whole life, I think. And the only conclusion that I think if we can draw from everything you've said is we should be doing everything possible to stop that from happening. Yeah, George, I really appreciate your call. Look, I, we're a country of immigrants, and I'm an immigrant, so let me put that up front as well. But the reality is the folks are coming. And it's not just a, the focus has been on Metro Vancouver. But there's going to be people moving in Nanaimo, a lot of them, and to Victoria and Campbell River, all those places, and we have to be ready for it. And I just don't see the folks there. And I appreciate the government saying we're going to build, but my worry is, Chris, as you said, are we looking at the core issue of what is holding us back? What got us into this mess in the yeah. first place when it comes to housing, right? Well, we have a, we have a, a housing crisis, an affordability crisis. And, and the challenge is that governments that, you know, Ottawa, Victoria, City Hall, if this really was a crisis that they were taking seriously, why aren't they sitting down together? You've got Ottawa making a decision and then Victoria making a decision. Then one city hall does something, another level does something else. They seem to be pointing. There's a lot of finger pointing. Um, there's a lot, they're working at cross purposes. Sometimes the policies are not consistent. Um, and so we're not really having an honest conversation about what it's going to take to move the needle on supply. Mm-hmm. Let's find balance in terms of the people where we, we want to come to this country. Let's make sure they have the skills to fill the gaps in our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's understand what the rules and regulations are that are in place that are preventing builders from building the homes that we need. Yeah. Chris, as always, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, a new survey done by Research Co. Uh, shows that more than a third of Canadians say they are agnostic, atheist, or profess no religion. And religion is not regarded as a major component of life for three in four Canadians, according to that uh, poll. Uh, according to that survey, uh, one in four Canadians, 25%, say religion is personally very important to them. And the portion of Canadians who consider religion as very important is highest in Ontario, about 29%. But in British Columbia, it's about 20%. And BC is home to the large portion of Canadians, 41%, who say they don't pers- participate in any religion. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about the issue is Mario Conseco, president of Research Co. Uh, Mario, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jess. Great to be here with you. It's a uh, it's a bit of a can of worms when you start talking uh, religion. And when I looked you at tell the poll, me. yeah, I know, I know. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about housing today, park boards, so everything's just been just that way. Politics and religion. So there you go. But it's an important one, especially this time of the year. Um, uh, why do you? First of all, were you surprised by any of the findings? There's a couple of things that really caught my eye because we use this questionnaire as part of a survey on the things that we value as people. And there are some significant drops in the way we feel about specific things. Uh, 73% say family is personally very important to them. That's down eight points. Uh, Friends, it's down to 49%. It was 60 a year ago. So aside from the findings on religion, there's a sense of dejection for many Canadians. It wasn't a great year. Things are getting expensive. There's a lot of uh, animosity related to what is going to be happening politically, a lot of fear about the future. And we were 
thinking that maybe this was going to push people back into religion. You know, if you're dissatisfied with everything that is going on, maybe you're going to get in tune with faith. And what we see is that there's no change at the national level. And Quebec and BC, which used to be the beacons of light when it came to religion, are now at the bottom when it comes to importance and at the top when it comes to not having any religion at all. So in regards to not having any, having any religion at all, what is causing this in your mind? Well, I think part of what we're seeing here is a discrepancy in the way the generations are talking about religion. And what is really crucial to me looking at the findings is the 35 to 54-year-old demographic is the one that is the least likely to say that religion plays an important role in their lives. Um, These are people who have aging parents, who have young children, and maybe are thinking about doing things differently when it comes to faith. Um, It doesn't mean that they're not spiritual or looking for that type of experience outside of organized religion, Uh, but the numbers are particularly high in BC. 41% who say, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, or I profess no religion, and significantly large proportions as well, who even if they are part of a religion, do not visit a church, a temple, or a synagogue. Um, this has been a long-term challenge for organized religion uh, in Western society. One would argue, um, I had a friend who's um, involved with the church and said, you know, leading the way is Europe in regards to people people walking away from religion. Uh, the U.S. Uh, is still holding strong, but the challenges are, significant, are there as well. And Canada fits somewhere in the middle in regards to uh, religion uh, and, and, and Canadian people where, where we sit. Um, do you see this problem, um, this sort of problem trend continuing where we are walking away from traditional organized religion? Um, I think it is happening at a more rapid pace than most people expected. Hmm. And a part of the situation has to do with migration patterns. Uh, you look at, a, at, at an area of BC like the Fraser Valley, mm-hmm. where we had political candidates campaigning in churches just 10 years ago. Uh, now you have uh, new people moving into the Fraser Valley, some of them from immigrant communities, uh, bringing different types of values and being interested in different things than the ones that those who have been there for generations were interested in. Uh, I think we see the same situation in the United States. We were lucky enough to ask in the U.S. exactly a year ago. And what is interesting about the way they feel about religion is it's essentially an urban-rural divide. If you're in a community that is fairly small, the church continues to be the place to be in. This is where you establish that emotional connection with everybody. But you move into the urban areas, particularly in the northeast, and the, the way in which people feel about religion Uh, gets lower and and lower. So I think it's definitely generational, but it also has to do a lot with the way communities are built. And I think this is what is changing in Canada because of the new uh, patterns that we have when it comes to immigrants moving into areas where they didn't live 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, A tough one to answer here, but do you think, you know, some have said one of the reasons we're going through this polarizing period, the challenges Western society, Western culture is seeing before it is that we have walked away from faith. Faith grounds you. Faith uh, binds communities, as you said. Um, And that perhaps, uh, while it may not be attending church uh, or whatever religious uh, um, religion you're affiliated with, but having faith in your life to a certain degree does ground you, that it's actually better for society. What would you say to that? Well, I think it's an important issue uh, to remember, particularly because of the way in which we've all been raised. You know, there's a lot of people who have been baptized but have walked away from uh, Catholicism, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, There might be a situation where you're starting to believe that there's some sort of outside help that is going to come uh, to to assist you when you're facing troubles. Uh, There's a lot of people who continue to pray, for instance. And we saw a bit of a jump during the pandemic. You know, if we go back to the service that we conducted in 2018, 2019, it was at around 17, 18%. It climbed a little bit higher at the end of the pandemic. So you had that option of actually looking at spirituality and organized religion as as something that was going to help you out. Um, It seems to be at the highest level because we didn't see any change from 2022 to 2023. And part of what is important here is to try to figure out what is going to happen with those generations. Uh, Our expectation was that the 18 to 34-year-old was going to be completely out, but it's the 35 to 54-year-old generation that is essentially, as the R.E.M. said, uh, song used to say, uh, losing their religion. Hmm. Um, 
what impact, if any, the study that you've provided here, the numbers you're providing, what impact do you think this is having on our politics? And some would argue, so if those that go to church regularly believe or that are people of faith are um, smaller in number and getting smaller, is there um, not a militancy, but at least a desire to protect their values and perhaps be involved in politics and some of the polarizing politics that we see see today are those that are believe that religion has no uh, place in our politics pushing back just is that part of the culture wars and polarizing politics that we're seeing? Well, we do see it a little bit differently because it is definitely related to ideology. Uh, If you're an NDP voter from the 2021 election or a liberal voter from the 2021 election, you're more likely to be to say that you're spiritual but not religious. And when you look at the way conservatives see themselves, the numbers are practically the same. So conservatives think of spirituality in a larger fashion as part of religion or religion as their spirituality. And this is an important connection to make because we're, we're heading into uh, elections provincially, possibly federally. We're going to have a lot of discussion in the next 12 months about the U.S. election as well, where we know faith plays a role in specific communities. And it's important to know that this is a way in which people can be connecting to to, to politicians and to certain things that they want to see in the future. You know, we, we've seen the reaction in the United States after the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, religion played a big role in the way the two parties decided that they were going to face this massive change to the way the law has been working in the States for the past 50 years. So it's not uncommon to see something like that happen in Canada if we get to that level. If this present trend continues, as has been very well articulated in in, in this study, if this present trend continues for another 10 years, what does British Columbia look like? Well, if we continue to see the same trends, uh, religion is going to start to drop dramatically. I mean, we still have more than 40% of people who say that they're Christian. And, and, you know, there might be a lot of reasons for that to be changing. There's dissatisfaction with the way organized religion has been treating LGBT communities. The Catholic Church really hasn't turned the page on the scandal that they have. So a part of this is what is going to happen with the younger generations. And, And to me, the essence here is going to be how the 35 to 54 year old generation teaches their children if we wound up if we wind up in a situation where that generation stops talking about religion then the 18 to 34 year olds in 20 years are not going to be doing this at all so it, it definitely places the onus on where we go and what type of situation we have as a society Quebec is an interesting case because they're very low on actually being religious. Uh, but you tell them that they need to take the crucifix out of the National Assembly and you open a can of worms that you won't be able to close. <laughs> well, there you go. Mario, as always, thank you for your time. Uh, and if I don't speak to you, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, yes. Thank you. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. <laughs>